But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, now Paul is moving to say that we know that if the earthly house, this tent is dissolved, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's saying we understand that even though this life may end in death, we still have something to hope for, something to look for. And he explained in verses 1 through 5 that this looking forward to is not that we want to go through death, not that we want to be found naked, but that we may be clothed with life. So verse 6 says, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We know that as long as we're physically here, we're not going to get to enjoy heaven. So there's a reason why we groan. We're looking for something better. Have you ever wanted something better? Ever wanted a better car, a better house, better motel room, better place? You know, Here he's saying we want something better. And we know as long as we're here, we're not with the Lord. Then he says in verse 7, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Now what does he mean by that? What does it mean to walk by faith? Let your faith guide you through life. Okay. Your faith guides you. Your faith directs you. But what does he mean when he says not by sight? Okay. When you go back to chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, he says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. And so what he's describing here is, is we're not the kind of people who walk by what we see here in this life. And let me tell you, as we're going to go further, there's going to be a, a point based upon that. It's going to be about the way we think and the way we view things. Now, verse 8 will say, We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. If you had your choice, what would you choose? Now let me ask you, if you're young in life and you've got a choice, okay, you can go be with the Lord or you can continue to stay here on earth. What do most of us want to say? Stay here. As you go further in life, and you begin to look at this physical life and what it has to offer, if the Lord were to say, okay, would you like to stay here or would you like to go on to heaven? What do you think most people would say? Let me go on right now. I'll take the offer. I think a lot of it has to do with understanding, with faith, with maturity. When you're young, you think, about all of the things you can enjoy here. But as you get older, you become more mature, you understand that the real joy, the real pleasure, is not in what this life has to offer, but the life which is coming has to offer. And so Paul said we would rather be with the Lord. That's uh, be present with Him. Verse 9 through 11. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear.
appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we're well known to God and I trust are well known in your consciences. He says we make it our aim. What does he mean by that? That's our goal. That's where we're, we're, we're striving for, to be pleasing to the Lord, whether we are here or whether we're absent from here. That's always going to have to be our goal. And if I am here, then I've got to work on trying to be what the Lord wants me to be here. If I am there, I'm always going to be trying to please the Lord. Now, verse 10 to me is a key verse. This is one of the ones you need to have a star in the margin of your Bible. You need to have it underlined. For we must some appear. Is that what it says? All appear. Now, uh, he uses a phrase here before the judgment seat of Christ. The word judgment seat in the Greek language is bema, B-E-M-A. If you go to Corinth today, you walk in the, the archaeological ruins there, and you walk in, there's the Temple of Apollo that's very impressive to the left as you walk in. But as you go a little bit further, uh, you look straight in front of you, and there's this big platform. Platform's probably head high on me. That is the platform out in front of the governor's space, or we might say, not this residence, but where the public building was at, where he would come out and render decisions. It was their courthouse. But you see, their governors and their procurators were not like our judges today. Our judges today usually are not the ones who decide guilt and innocence, even though they sometimes do. They're generally the one who guides the trial. But if you were the governor, you were judge, you were jury, and executioner. In other words, you, you decided all three. And you remember Paul in Acts 18 being brought here, do you not? And uh, Paul appeared before the judgment seat of Gallio. Do you all remember that, Acts 18? And Paul says here, and when if you're riding to Corinth, and this is a place that they would think of that would come to their mind, when Paul says we all must appear before the judgment seat, not Gallio, but of Christ, everyone will have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? To receive the things done in the body. What are we going to be judged by on the day of judgment? Our actions where? Here. Here, while in the body. In other words, this, this is our testing stage. And so everybody is going to be judged by the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Uh, when he says whether good, what does that imply? When we get to the day of judgment, will God take notice of the good things we have done? You know, generally when we think about somebody being uh, judged, we think about what? About the bad they've done and what law they have violated. But here the picture is to be given is that you're going to stand before Him and you're going to be judged for either doing good or for doing bad.
And so uh, we must appear there, all of us here, whether good or bad. Now look at verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What does he mean, knowing the terror? What a punishment waits the wicked. Let me tell you about my junior high and high school. I went to Lamar County High School. From kindergarten through 12th grade was on one campus. I mean, it's not like here in Warren County where you've got multiple schools. But uh, you start school over here. We all ate the same lunchroom. We all went to the same gym. Uh, there was about 1,200 kids from kindergarten through 12th grade. And uh, when you went from the 6th grade to the 7th grade, many of us went and took a class called Ag. Any of y'all remember Ag class? Uh, Mr. Weeks was the Ag teacher. He had developed a reputation. And uh, I can remember the first day going to Mr. Weeks' class. He said, boys, I said, be quiet. And there's always one or two that has to test him out. And Mr. Weeks' paddle was a boat paddle. I'm not exaggerating. I have seen many manly boys cry in front of Mr. Weeks. Uh, in fact, most of the teachers, when they had an intractable child, went to Mr. Weeks. And uh, if they lived, they... <laughs> uh, but I will tell you, uh, Mr. Weeks never got to whip me. I was scared enough of him. I never did test him because I saw what he did to Ricky Merchant. Ricky Merchant was one of these guys who wanted to, you know, put, put you to the test. He was a tough boy, played football. And I remember him making him grab his ankles. And I remember him with the boat. Of course, it would be considered abuse today. But I remember picking him up off the floor with a boat paddle. And I remember Ricky rolling out on the floor and big old tears coming out of his eyes. And uh, Ricky never said another word of any disrespect to Mr. Weeks till we graduated. And uh, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Do you believe that God can be wrathful? And harsh to those who are doing evil. How harsh can God be? Well, let's just think a moment. What about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay. And what did it do? It rained fire and brimstone. Brimstone is burning sulfur. Now, how would you like to die in a fire? I wouldn't. Can you imagine homes? What's going to happen to them? If, if, what would happen to this building right here if even with all the brick and block, if, if brimstone burning sulfur? You know what would happen? This whole building would catch on fire. And there's enough wood in it that it would fall on you. And you can imagine, well, you say, well, I'll run outside. What's going to happen to you then? 
you're still going to die. So, God was harsh. What about the people in Noah's day? What happened to all the people except for eight of them? They drowned. Uh, any of you ever felt like you were near drowning? Ever been in the creek when you got your foot stuck and you thought you weren't going to be able to come up or had a cousin who held you under a little bit longer than you thought you should be held under? Or I can remember the panic of an older cousin holding my head underwater to the point where I couldn't breathe. Is that a scary thought? was to me. Well, the terror of the Lord is going to be very, very terrible. Paul knows what's going to happen. He knows that on the day of judgment, to those people who have been living wicked, there's going to be a place called hell. And Jesus describes it where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. How long is it going to last? Forever. Well, if you know that, Paul says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, uh, we've had some really interesting lightning storms the last few days, haven't we? What if everybody here in this building were here and all of a sudden it was a real bad lightning storm and lightning was striking all in the parking lot? And David says, I'm going out to my car. And I'm looking out there and lightning is striking, lightning is striking, lightning is striking. And what would I want to do to David? I'd say, David, don't you go out there yet. Wait till the storm passes. And if he said, oh, I'm still going out there, Tony, which is what he'd probably say. I'd say, no, David, look, it'll be all over in just a little bit. Let me persuade you, don't do this. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? Does he know what's on the other side? Yes, he does. And he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We're trying to get people ready for eternity. But we are well known to God. And I also trust are well known in your conscience. He's talking about motivation. Why is Paul a preacher? You know, if I were elders interviewing a prospective preacher, you know one of the first questions I'd want to ask? Why are you a preacher? Why do you want to preach? What would you want the answer to be? Okay, the terror of the Lord? I want to save souls. What if he says, well, I sort of like talking? That's not a good answer. You see, what he is talking about here is, I want you to know this is our motivation. And let me put this in the bigger picture of 2 Corinthians. Paul has critics there at Corinth. They're trying to undermine him. They're trying to say, Paul is not worthy of being a man for you to follow or to listen to. You ought to be listening to us. Here we have letters of commendation. And you ought to be listening to us. Now, let's take with me now verses 12 through 15. 
For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you an opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance, but not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of a sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who should live no longer to themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. Verse 12, Paul says, We do not commend ourselves again to you. Paul's not saying this so everybody says, Oh, good old Paul. That's, that's what he's just a good old guy. He said, We're doing this to give you an answer for those who are creating these problems. They can turn to those people who are there creating the problem and say, What's your motivation? Why are you here? Why are you preaching? Why are you teaching? What is it that keeps you uh, doing what you're doing? Is it this money? Or is it, if, if it's a question about money, what would they say about Paul? How much had Paul been paid by Corinth? Nothing. Zero. So they couldn't argue that it was about money. But I want you to notice he says here, the last part of verse 12, for those who boast in appearance but not in heart. Boast in appearance, but not in heart. Did Jesus deal with people who were more concerned with the outward than they were the inward? What about the Pharisees? They prayed all stand up to be shown in hand. Yeah. Remember Matthew 23? You know, why did sepulchers... He said, outside you appear beautiful, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You see, I just taught the VBS Learning Centers on the Pharisees. One of the things I went, I went out to Dollar Tree and bought me a $1 cup. Real pretty cup. Then I went out here to the mud pile and got a bunch of mud down the bottom of it and smeared it around, but I put it in the bottom so you couldn't see it. I told the kids, I said, would you like to have a drink out of my new cup? And, uh, of course, all of them, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, okay, here, let me let you look at it first. And they looked inside the cup. Ooh, what is that? You know. And I said, I don't want to drink out of that. I said, that's the way Jesus pictured the Pharisees. Outwardly, you appear beautifully, but inside you're not. And Paul is saying here, these people who boast in appearance, look at my pedigree. You know, look, I'm a Jew. I've got letters from Jerusalem. I am telling you, I am certified. And Paul says, my certification comes from God. I I base mine in the heart, not in the outward aspect. And then he uses perhaps one of the most difficult verses in the book of 2 Corinthians. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of a sound mind, it is for you. I'll tell you, there's two different interpretations of this. And I don't know that I can come down hard on one side or the other. If he says, we are of here beside ourselves, 
Um, do you remember when Paul spoke before Agrippa and he said, Paul, your much learning has made you mad beside yourself? Is the way some translations translate it. That's not the same word, but you get the idea. Have you ever some, seen some people who were a little bit touched because they were so smart? Nobody ever seen that? <laughs> well, Paul says if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. But if we're of a sound mind, it's for you. And so you, you look at it as if if we're just a little bit on the... People think we're over the top, beside ourselves. That's for God. We're, we'll just do everything for God. And if we're a sound mind, we're thinking clearly it's for you. Now, I will tell you the word beside yourselves is the word from which we get our English word ecstasy. That's not your normal word. And the word ecstasy carries with it the idea here of a person who has got a message from God. So it could mean we who have gotten a message from God, it is for God that we serve. And if we're of a sound mind thinking in human terms, it's for you. And you say, well, which one is right? I tend to favor the first view, but uh, I wanted to present the other view as well for you. Okay, then verse 13, or 14. For the love of Christ compels us. Now back up in verse 11, what else caused him to serve? Knowing the terror of the Lord. Now what else compels him, motivates him? Love of Christ. So you mean a man can be motivated by both love and fear? How many of you were scared of your parents? How many of you loved your parents? Were there times that you were motivated out of fear? Were there times that you were motivated out of love? Yes. And Paul is using both of these. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus. We're thinking it like this. That if one died for all, then all died. And you say, well, I don't understand that. If Jesus died for everybody, and in order for me to serve Him, I have to die to self, then everybody ought to die for, to self for Him. Shouldn't they? If Jesus died so that every one of us could live, and we have to die to ourselves in order to enjoy the life that He provides, shouldn't we all be willing to do that? Paul says, the love of Christ compels me to do that. That's my motivation in all of this. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. For him who died for them and rose again. So that is our motivation. We're motivated by fear of, of what is the punishment. And we're motivated by the love that has been shed are given for us in the shedding of Jesus' blood. Okay, now I want to pick up with verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
Even though we have known Christ in the flesh, according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, from now on, Paul said, whatever it is, we're we're changing our approach. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. We regard no one according to the flesh. We don't think about people only in fleshly terms. If you think about people only in fleshly terms, what does life appear to be? Very brief. You look at somebody who's suffering and you really feel sorry for them, don't you? When somebody passes away, we tend to do what? Cry and are sad. But do you remember what Paul said to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13? But I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are fallen asleep, that you sorrow not as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, them also who have fallen asleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. What he is saying is, is that we don't have to sorrow like they do. I'll tell you, the first time I went to a funeral that didn't seem like a funeral was when Brother Gus Nichols passed away. I was a student at Fred Hardeman. Of course, my family had had connection with Brother Nichols because I grew up in that same area. But uh, I was in a singing group that was asked to come and sing at the funeral. And uh, so we left Fred Hardeman early that morning and got down there. And they told us, said to all the ones who were going to sing, we're going over to Brother Nichols' house and they're going to feed us lunch. And I felt awful bad about going over there and eating the food that was brought for the family. And we got there and Brother Flavel Nichols, who's been here several times, uh, he had a real close connection in Alabama to us. And he came over, oh, Brother Tony, good to see you again. Oh, isn't this a wonderful day? A wonderful day. His daddy's funeral was that day. He said, my dad has lived for this day all of his life. And uh, he said, if, if he ever did any hopping and skipping, today would have been the day. And I just, you know, that just amazed me as I went around. And, uh, of course, the other brothers there, Brother Hardeman Nichols and... Uh, was there and uh, I'm trying to think uh, Brother Purvey also was there and uh, I just remember thinking these people aren't crying they aren't sad they look at today as a day of accomplishment and uh, I don't know I, I haven't been able to have that same kind of, uh, of I don't say confidence but the same kind of you know, I, I feel so much when I see people lose somebody. But their minds were so mature about that. 
And Paul says, he said, now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't just look at people as if they are just here physically. How's he looking at them? He's looking at them as eternal beings that are going to go somewhere after this life is over. And if you look at every person's face and you think, that person's either going to heaven or they're going to hell when this life is over. Does that change the way you look at people? Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, well, you know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we're of all men most pitiable or miserable. Well, he is saying now that uh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. Jesus is no longer in the flesh. Where is He now? He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. So he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Once you become a Christian, your perspective on life changes. It's no longer I'm just living for the here and now. Now I have to think about what I do, about whether it will affect me going to heaven or not. And that makes a much different perspective here, and Paul's trying to say, he said that everything becomes new. We are a new creation, or new creature. Uh, we actually have a different aspect to us. We have a, a different hope to us. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled? Be correct? Okay. Put in order. How do we generally use the word reconciled in our society today? What? Okay, financially reconcile your banking statement. <laughs> What's that? Make up. What are you thinking about when you start make up? I'm Okay, let's look at it in terms of a husband and wife and then maybe some uh, friends. You ever known friends that uh, get at odds with one another and they won't talk to each other for a while and then somebody comes along and says to them, hey, we need to work this out. We need to be reconciled. We need to get our friendship back together again. Maybe there's a husband and a wife. They're having difficulty. They can't get along. And she says, you got to move out. And he moves out and lives in another place for a while. Um, I've had several times where people have come to me and said, we're having marriage problems and we need some help. We need some encouragement. And I'd say, okay, uh, what can I do? And, you know, what kind of help do you need? And we'll try to talk about things that will bring the two back together as one. To be reconciled. Well, here's the picture. When man is born, is he with God? Is he pure? Is he holy? If a child dies, does he get to go to heaven? Yes. 
But what happens to us as life goes along? We sin. And what happens when we sin? Isaiah 59, 1 and verse, verses 1 and 2, he said, God's ear is not heavy that it cannot hear, His hand's not short that it cannot say, but your sins and your iniquities have separated you from your God. You see, there has been a separation that has taken place. We're no longer walking with God. We're walking contrary to God. And so we have someone comes along and says, you know what, you need to be right with God again. You need to be reconciled with God. You realize that God's blessings are there, all the good things that He does for you and has done for you? Yes, I realize that. And so Paul is saying here, when you look at this context, he says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself. Let me ask you a question. If we're sitting on, you know, you've got a husband and a wife, and the wife looks over to the husband and says, we don't sit as close as we used to. And what does the husband say? I haven't moved. You're the one that slid on the other side of it. If we look at the problems between man and God, who's moved? Man is the one that's moved. We're the ones who've separated ourselves from God. So who should actually become seeking reconciliation? Man should. We should. But that's not the way he puts it here. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself. He's the one who has initiated the reconciliation. You remember Romans chapter 5? For when we were without strength in due season, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for the righteous man would one dare to die, for a good man would peradventure one even dare to die. But God commends His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, God is the one who has wanted to bring about the reconciliation even though it wasn't His fault. He brings us back to Himself through the gift of Jesus Christ to make things right. That is a major, major observation from verse 18. And has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. We're to go around and tell everybody that God has done this. That's what the good news is. God has given Himself. He's given His Son to die for our sins. In verse 19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And it's committed to us the word of reconciliation. God's doing this through Christ. How does it work? When we have the blood of Jesus applied to our lives, God does not impute The better word instead of impute is account. This is an accounting term where you uh, put a tally down, if you will. God is not accounting to them their trespasses. God is not looking down here on His list and saying, okay, Tony did this on this day. Tony did this on this day. What happens? The blood of Jesus Christ does what? It wipes all of those sins away. Aren't you glad that God has done that? 
What an observation. Now let me take verses 20 and 21 in the next two minutes. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For Him who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We're ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? They represent our country using political. Okay. They are official representatives of the head of the government. Paul is saying we as ambassadors are set out by God officially to implore men to be reconciled to God. What does it mean to implore? You know, we sing a song, Open, I Implore. What's that? To, to beg, to ask, to push, to plead. And uh, that's exactly what he is saying here. Well, Lord willing, next Sunday, chapter 6. Steve uh, Norris, he misquoted first. Uh, that's an only God, Kitty Well, Ken.